Thanks, thanks, thanks. I always look forward to returning here. It's one of my favorite places in the whole world. And, um, and I mean that very sincerely. My wife is here to verify that I always return and uh, with glowing reports, the, the culture of honor that is practiced here with uh, such genuineness is something that is overwhelming. My wife happens to be with me on this trip, which she seldom gets to travel with me, my wife, the wife of my youth. I'm so glad to have her with me. Now, and uh, we were talking last night when we came back to the hotel room about just how blessed we feel to be in relationship with Steve and Linda, your senior leaders. Uh, our relationship now spans uh, approaching 10 years. Uh, we met in California, um, and uh, we didn't know at the time that our life paths were traveling parallel to one another and that God had decided on a convergence point out there in our future where the connection would take place. And I uh, concur with what Steve was saying about the ebb and flow, the reciprocity in our relationship, uh, the, the give and take. It reminds me, as it did this morning, of what John says in the Revelation that he writes, the last book of the Bible. He's writing to seven specific churches, but he identifies the people in those churches that would receive his letter as being his companions in tribulation. And that's, uh, that speaks volumes because people who are truly companions, they know how to weather the difficult times. And I value that more than I could ever let you know in words. Now, you may think that that is just so much mutual backslapping, but it really is true. So, with that said, I want to um, make mention of my newest book that we have. I think that there are a few copies remaining back there. It's called Brush Strokes of Grace. Bill Johnson wrote the foreword to it, which I'm very honored by. Uh, Danny Silk, um, some of the names that you're familiar with, Chris Valentin, um, Benny Johnson, the list goes on and on. They wrote endorsements, and I'm very appreciative for that. And it was just released last month, and um, it's been very encouraging to us, the response that we've had already, not just here in the United States, but around the world, because there is such a hunger for the message of grace. Yeah. Uh, they, we might assume that we have exhausted uh, the scriptural resources that illustrate to us and demonstrate to us what grace really looks like, and uh, I would beg to differ. It just seems to me after almost 37 years, can you imagine four decades nearly of being an, a, st a student of the scripture that I am uncovering things that are literally shocking to me. So I'll read the back uh, cover of the book um, that, to give you just a hint of what it's about and why it's called Brushstrokes of Grace. You may not have considered the narrative of the gospels to be a painting but simply pages of print chronicling the life of Jesus, an ancient text without any texture at all. This is due in part to the centuries of religion giving us a drab and black and white Jesus. However, when the gospels are read through the lens of grace, we see Jesus in high definition and living color. The canvas of scripture does not portray pallid, religiously correct principles as some would assume. 
Grace was and is not found in principles, but in a person, the person of Jesus. Jesus, the consummate painter, and this is probably my favorite part, as he dictated it to me long ago. Jesus, the consummate painter, his palette, words full of grace and truth, and his canvas was not pristine personalities, but imperfect people like you and me. So, no pressure, just buy them all. I don't want to take them home. <laughs> Would you join me in John's Gospel in chapter 8, uh, a passage of Scripture that I am sure that most everyone in this room has probably visited at one time or another, maybe so many times that it's almost worn smooth with familiarity. But I've come to understand over the years as I have returned over and over to, to passages that I thought that I had exhausted uh, the understanding of that I, like looking at a diamond in different, a different light, I saw a refraction of insight that I had not seen before. And that's what I hope to do with you this morning as I talk to you about scandalous grace. Now that may seem like an unusual pairing of words that there's such tension and polarity between the word scandal and grace that they are diametrically opposed. And in reality though, if you look with fresh eyes at the life and ministry of Jesus, not the airbrushed, housed, broken and domesticated Jesus that we've been given by religion, but the real Jesus, we begin to discover that his life was constantly uh, being assaulted by controversy and by scandal. As you're about to see here in the reading of this passage of scripture, of John chapter eight, if Jesus had been alive today in the days of the paparazzi, when with their long range cameras capturing these images of the unsuspecting in risky rendezvous, then Jesus's picture would have not been buried somewhere in the religious section of the Jerusalem Times, but his picture would have been splattered all over the front pages of the first century newspaper, if you can allow me to go there and make it relevant for you. And there would have, this would have, incited a brush fire, a, a firestorm of innuendo about him and misunderstanding him. I am of the opinion that if the message of grace, the gospel of grace, does not incite in us this feeling that you've gone too far with the message, I wonder if we're really hearing the gospel of grace. The gospel of grace as it's presented to us in the life of Jesus is a expectation wrecking reality. Yeah. It literally causes us to seek for new definitions for words that we thought we knew all too well. Do you realize that throughout the life and ministry of Jesus that he was constantly under a microscope. The religious community didn't know quite what to make of this revolutionary rabbi that was coloring outside of the lines, that was saying things that were totally foreign to them, that sounded heretical. I have been taking inventory lately and 
begun to realize that if I'm not regularly accused of teaching heresy, I wonder if I'm really preaching the gospel. I want to be in good company with him. I would rather be lumped in that group than among those of the general consensus that have given me their stamp of approval. So, let me read quickly from the message translation that I think uh, illustrates this so very clearly. In verse one, it says, Jesus went across to the Mount of Olives. Now, it's very important for you to understand the context of this, and I will make a point of that in a moment. But as he was soon back at the temple, which means he had just prior in chapter seven been at the temple, swarms of people came to him, and he sat down and he taught them. The religion scholars and the Pharisees led in a woman who had been caught in the very act of adultery, and they stood her in plain sight of everyone and said, teacher, this woman was caught red-handed in the act of adultery. Moses in the law gives orders to stone such persons. What do you say? Do you feel the tension in this? They were trying to trap him into saying something incriminating so that they could bring charges against him. So Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger in the dirt. They kept at him, badgering him, and, stra and he straightened up and said, this, the sinless one among you, go first, throw the stone. Bending down again, he wrote some more in the dirt. Hearing that, they walked away, one after another, beginning with the oldest. The woman was left alone, and Jesus stood up and spoke to her. Woman, where are they? Does not one condemn you? No, master, neither do I, said Jesus. Go your way, and from now on, don't sin. Now, I have found this through the years that what, I will, what you will hear will be far more than what I actually say. That's something that's always been intriguing to me, that people will come to me quite often after a meeting and they will rehearse what they thought I said, and I said nothing of the kind. <laughs> quite often, what they thought I said was better than what I actually said. So now that, we now that we have established that, I think it's important for us to see, in the words of Mark Twain, that it's not the things that we don't know that really give us trouble as much as it is the things that we are so certain of that just aren't so. Yeah. And as he framed it to me, not Mark Twain, but as the Lord framed it to me, <laughs> lest you think i am become a medium. He said to me not long ago, he said, Randall, I didn't come so much to answer all of your questions, but to question all of your answers. So now, now you must lend me your attention for this portion as a segue into what we have just read in John chapter eight. Many times we come to the wrong conclusions about certain passages of scripture because it, it is almost as if we have entered a movie that is now an hour in and we are sitting there struggling to catch up with the plot and to determine who are the main characters. You know that feeling, don't you? And so in order for us to understand what unfolds here in John chapter eight, which I am referring to as scandalous grace, 
we must look back at least one chapter. If we look back to the previous chapter in John chapter 7, and I will just review it. I'll summarize it for you. In John chapter 7, Jesus is so strategic and intentional about where he is and what he says in those particular places. The timing of Jesus was impeccable. You must understand that the things that happened in and around his life were not, as we would put it, serendipitous or coincidental in nature, that they were just events that had no rhyme or reason whatsoever because he only did those things that he saw the Father doing, and he only said those things he heard the Father say. So when he comes in John chapter 7, and this will have, make great, much greater sense to you in a moment, when he comes in John chapter 7 up to the temple, at the time of the feast, this particular feast was the Feast of Tabernacles. And if you're not familiar with the Feast of Tabernacles, no worries. This is a feast among many of the feasts of Israel whenever the children of Israel were come, would come to Jerusalem to celebrate and to commemorate their ancestors and how that God had provided water for them in the wilderness. Remember, they are just a few days into the wilderness, into this hot, arid peninsula that we look at now that is part of Saudi Arabia. And we, they are here in this waterless, arid place, and they are dying of thirst. And Moses is given the instruction to, I think this is quite humorous, maybe you don't find it humorous, he is given the instruction to strike a rock that has literally been following them for a while. You know, I don't really have an amazing grasp for the obvious, but I think I would notice a rock that is following me wherever I go. That's how Paul describes it. It was a rock that followed them in the wilderness. And we know that to be Christ. And when he struck the rock, there was a, a hydrant that began to release from it that quenched the thirst of millions of people. So back to John chapter seven, what does that have to do with what is happening on this great feast? If you can envision with me what is happening on the, tops, on the top of the steps of the temple, there are, are at least 70 priests that, are, that have positioned themselves. Now that, you won't read this in John's gospel. He didn't go to the trouble to give you all the detail because he probably wasn't thinking that there would be Western Christians that would be reading this. He just assumed that people would know this was going on in the context of what is happening. So there's 70 priests that are lined up on the top of step of the temple. And they have these huge vessels, uh, vases that hold 30 to 40 gallons of water. And at a certain moment, and it was an electric moment when they are all celebrating how God had provided them for them and satisfied their ancestors' thirst in the wilderness, they would tip these jars over and the water would cascade down the steps. And I believe that it must have been like this, that Jesus was standing there at that very moment, just waiting for the water to cascade down to where he was. And as it splashed up on his sandals, he did something that threw shockwaves through the audience. He lifted his voice, the scripture said, and he cried with a loud voice, he that believeth in me out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. He capitalized on the moment. Now you say, why is that important to this whole scenario of the woman who was taken in adultery that is cast at the feet of Jesus? You will see if you connect the dots with me. 
Because did you notice in verse one, it said that Jesus had been at the temple and he went out to the Mount of Olives and he's come back to the temple. And there he is. And the Pharisees bring this woman. What they are getting ready to experience is unlike anything that they had ever known. It was something that was foreign to them to say the least because their characterization of God had always been a distant God, a God that was moody, a God that was vindictive, a God that descended on mountains with vivid lightning and, and uh, deafening thunder. Uh, the mountains would shake and rocks would crack open and uh, they distanced themselves from God. And they were not prepared for this proverbial paradigm shift. Our Jesus was getting ready to reveal what God was really like and what he'd always been like all along. They were going to come face to face with the essence of who God is. And the essence of God is not power. The essence of God is not signs and wonders. The essence of God, even though I'm not minimizing or discounting those things, but the essence of God that embodies all that he is, is purely and simply love. And they were getting ready to get an upgrade in their understanding that God doesn't love us because of who we are, but because of who he is. That God has never loved you any more than he always has, even before you were conceived, even before you emerged from your mother's womb and took your first breath in this realm. God loved you. Why? Because of who he is. So that means he can't love you any more than he always has because in order to do so, he'd have to be more than he already is. They're getting ready to discover that. Don't you find it interesting in the cast of characters that they're the, they're the Pharisees and the scribes, as one translation calls them, they're lawyers. The Pharisees, there are at least seven different Pharisees. There are only 6,000 of them in this particular sect in the days when Jesus arrived, but there are at least seven different types of Pharisees and they're rather amusing bunch. Two of them I'll talk about. One, they were referred to as the shoulder Pharisees because they were always journaling their good deeds, making sure that they didn't remember all the good things that they had done. You know, they kept all the receipts of all of their giving. Um, wait a minute, I shouldn't have said that, should I? <clears throat> and they wore them on their shoulders. Uh, funnier than that, though, is those that were referred to as the bloody-nosed and uh, bloody-forehead Pharisees. I must believe these are the ones that accosted this woman in the very act of adultery, which is a suspicious situation, isn't it? That they knew where she was because adultery is usually something, promiscuous behavior is usually something that is done with some discretion, isn't it? But somehow they knew where to find her. So they extract this woman out of this situation. Before I move on, the bloody nose, would you be interested in knowing about the bloody nose and the bloody foreheaded Pharisee? The reason why that they were referred to that, I mean, this is not something that is contrived. It's not something that is made up. These Pharisees, you could see the bruises and the unhealed sores and, and lacerations on their forehead and noses because they constantly shuffled around the streets of Jerusalem, a city that was made of stone for fear that they may look at a woman and lust and were constantly running in into things. 
It kind of reminds me of a vision a friend of mine had several years ago whenever, actually it was a dream where he had a dream of a rhino and this rhino was white and usually rhinos are not white. And this particular rhino though was, was white in coloration. We woke up from the dream, the Lord spoke to him and he said, that's a religious spirit. And he was wondering whether or not that was really the Lord speaking to him. And so he decided that he was going to further uh, research rhinos, uh, this animal that is indigenous to Africa. And so when he began to study rhinos, suddenly he got it. He understood what it was that he was saying. Uh, a, a rhino, they, listen, this is, these are some of the things that they are known for. A rhino has very poor vision. And as a result, they attack things that they don't see clearly. A rhino, his skin only looks like armor. You see the rhino in your mind? He, and his skin looks like armor, right? It looks thick and impenetrable. When in reality, it's very sensitive and he can be punctured and bleed out very easily. They are known as the fire guard of the jungle because they have the ability to sniff out miles away whenever a fire is started and they will rush to it and put it out before it has a chance to get started. <laughs> Sounds like a religious spirit, doesn't it? <clears throat> and probably the most notable characteristic of a rhino because when I first uttered the word, you had the picture in your mind of a horn and that horn is not on the top of its head and the horns are not coming from the side of its head, but it's coming out of the middle of its head, which a horn in scripture always speaks of strength and sometimes obstinance, which means that everything that the rhino looks at is influenced by its own perception. So it, these are the Pharisees that throw this woman at the feet of Jesus. And sometimes we fixate so much on the adultery that she was supposedly guilty of, and she probably was. I mean, I've meditated on this verse of scripture and I see this woman who has been mortified by being caught in this compromising position. She must have, when they grabbed her and snatched her from the arms of her lover, she must have been clutching for whatever clothes were lying about her. If, if not, maybe she grabbed the sheet from the bed and she's trying her best to cover herself and she's thrown at the feet, not just of women, but men that were given the responsibility for scrutinizing people and deciding who was in or out. And to make matters worse, in that particular culture, it is not unlike the world of the Middle East today that is dominated by the oppressive laws of Sharia law where women are disdained, that women are considered to be extremely inferior. As a matter of fact, just above the animals, believe it or not. The, the prayer of the Pharisee every morning would be, I thank God that I am a Jew and not a Gentile. I thank God that I am a man and not a woman. But see, we miss the point when we make this gender specific as far as I'm concerned, because there's not a person in here, no matter how much you have feel like that you have lived a life of fidelity that has not entertained thoughts of infidelity in your mind. You say, no, I have never let my mind go that far that I would be unfaithful to my spouse. You're still missing the point altogether. Because there's not a one of us in here whose minds are not constantly allured and drawn toward illegitimate thoughts. 
Because when I say illegitimate, I'm not just talking about you conceiving a child out of wedlock and giving birth to a child that is illegitimate, but every one of us have had illegitimate thoughts that we have allowed to remain in the womb of our mind too long. Are we still on the same page? So when I look at this woman who is an adulteress, who is thrown at the feet of Jesus, I don't just see her, somebody who remains anonymous until this day, but I find how many times that religion has thrown me down and they have taken up their stones ready to pelt me, to pound me, to leave me. See, a stoning was not just something that was intended to lacerate somebody or to leave them badly maimed. No, the intention was eventually for them to die. And so they would throw these stones at them with, with such intensity that it would crush their skull. See, there are people right now, if I could see you in the realm of the spirit, I would see that you have experienced many concussions as a result of the blows of religion that has been, that has been thrown against your head over and over again. And as a result, you have lived in condemnation rather in the revelation of who you always have been and who God wants you to be. Because Jesus did not come. Jesus did not come just to redeem us, but to redeem himself in us. Most of us think he came to redeem who we were. When all of that really is an illusion, what he's trying to do is to redeem the greater reality of who he's always been in and through you because it's Christ in you that is the hope of glory. See, he asked her, and I'm getting ahead of myself. He said, where are those that accuse you? Where are your condemners? Have you read the glorious words of the apostle Paul? I think he must have laid down his quill breathless when he turned the corner out of Romans chapter seven and he is talking in tones of self-loathing and he says, oh, wretched man that I am, the good that I would do, I do not, and that which I would not do, I find myself doing. He loathes himself. But then he turns a corner and he, he gets the revelation in Romans chapter 8. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ has set us free from the law of sin and death. He must have laid down his quill and rejoiced for a while because suddenly he got it. That while religion had condemned him all of his life that the law of love and life in Christ has set us free from the condemnation. They throw her down. I can see him standing there. Did you happen to notice that it said that whenever Jesus turned this whole situation on its heels, that as they begin to exit, they begin to drop their stones, that it started with the eldest and to the youngest. Would you be interested in what I believe that that means outside of the parameters of biblical commentators? I think that really what that means is that what God did in that moment was, was truly a watershed moment. It was a defining moment what he was showing, the reason why that those drop, these men drop their stones, which by the way, they're holding stones in their hands. And isn't it amusing? Isn't it ironic that the law that they so exalted was written in stone and they are grasping their own broken parts of the law 
to judge her with. Let me just put it to you in contemporary terms. How many times have you been surfing through television and you see some guy that it almost looks like he's going to have a coronary. He is screaming at a camera and he's standing behind a pulpit and he's screaming at a camera and he is spewing the venom of condemnation on his congregation and reminding them of what they are not instead of who they are. And you see the anger and you see the vengeance in him. And that has been the caricature of what God is like. And I use the word caricature because a caricature, you've seen those before. Some of you subjected yourself to that ridiculous experience <laughs> where you allow an artist to take certain features of your face and grossly exaggerate them, whether it be your nose, your lips, your ears, your forehead, or whatever. I promise you, I have not had that experience and it is not in my future. But most of these preachers do that. They have grossly exaggerated and distorted what God really looks like. And I wonder sometimes when they, like these Pharisees, are so vindictive in their tone toward their people, if maybe the reason why they're doing that is they're trying to salve their own conscience because they themselves have, are guilty of committing the, own, their, the very sins that they're condemning others for. I always get a little suspicious about that when I see these guys that their aorta looks like it's going to explode. <laughs> and it almost, you know, have you ever wondered uh, with a lot of the stuff that we hear in today's religious culture if Jesus is moody? Because when Jesus came the first time, when he came the first time, he came with love. He came with compassion. Right? He came with love. He came with compassion. He, with reconciliation. He's restoring people. But a lot of you have bought in that when he comes the second time, that suddenly he's gone schizophrenic and he's got a personality disorder. That when he comes the second time, he's coming back almost growling like Arnold Schwarzenegger. I'll be back. So he came the first time in love and the second time he's coming to nuke you? Do you understand why the world is so confused? It's like he needs anger management. That he's conflicted. It's because what we do is we impose our ideas and values of judgment upon God. And we don't understand that his justice comes out of his love. You got to hear what I just said. His justice truly comes out of his love. You think any of us have ever gotten what we deserve? Come on. If God, if God doesn't judge America, he's going to have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. If the criteria for judgment has to do with the concentration of evil, all right, that's the criteria that we've been given for judgment. If the criteria for judgment has to do with greater concentrations of evil, hence the re reference to Sodom and Gomorrah, then uh, I'm not so concerned about 
him judging the obvious places that we would pick out where there's concentrations of evil as much as the capital of corruption. The capital of corruption that tolerates, legalizes. If God is going to judge any place, he's not going to judge the places that you think are obvious if that's the criteria for judgment. But the problem is, is that what we have done, like C.S. Lewis said, God made man in his image and man being the gentleman he is returned the favor. So we think that God is like us. I am one of the greatest discoveries I've ever had in the last few years is to discover that he's not at all like me. He's not at all like you. That idolatry is not just confined to third world countries where people live primitive lives and they don't have access to the scriptures like we do where they hew out of wood and stone their imagination of what God is. No, the worst idolatry in the world is here in the Western world that assumes that we know what God is really like. And I promise you, now I'm getting out on some thin ice, one of the most polarized, and it's already beginning to gain tra traction, one of the most polarizing subjects that is on the horizon in the church is really going to cause us to revisit our understanding of grace and unconditional love. And I won't go any further than that. So they're standing there, and Jesus has this woman at his feet. He doesn't even bother to respond. Have you ever thought about most of the things that you respond to uh, either in innuendo or even in uh, someone's facial expression toward us of approval or disapproval? It's not worthy of your approval because when you do that, what, what is revealed to you is not something about them but about you because you're revealing the source people in your life. Anybody that can upset you, anybody that can make you rise and fall in your self-esteem, they are your source, not God. And God is so jealous for you. He's not jealous of you. He is not emotionally insecure, but he is jealous for you that he will allow you to go through that repeatedly until you finally realize these are the things that are stoning you to death. They're killing you so that you'll finally wake up and realize that your persona, everybody say persona, because your persona is not the true you. It's not the real you. The persona, most of you've never really met the real you. Most of us have never really met who we really are. Your persona is only that which you project. It is only about 20% of who you really are. Even the godless psychologists say that your subconscious were about 80%. I mean, the subliminal level of who you really are way down here. You're afraid because your ego will not let that filter out. And your ego is nothing more than an acronym for edging God out. So you live in a persona. You live in a world where you have learned how to act and react and you would rather trade the acceptance and the conditional love of your friends and family than to experience, to, li to live as a hostage, held hostage by people's expectations, rather than to experience the freedom and the liberty of unconditional love. 
That's why Jesus didn't, did you know Jesus didn't really even address the adultery issue? He said, wait a minute, he told her, go and sin no more. And we assume that when Jesus said, go and sin no more, that he was talking about her promiscuous life. Can I have your attention for a few more minutes? Okay, we'll, we'll conclude then. <laughs> um. You see, we tend to fixate, listen, we tend to fixate on our failures. We tend to fixate on our sins, plural. And as a result, all these things become uh, distractors. You do understand if you pay attention to the, if you pay too much attention to the wrong things, you will always pay too much. And so when you fixate on the things that you think define you, which are sins or falling short, then you're missing the point. You are missing that the thing from which that comes is a deeper root. It is sin. What is sin? Sin in its original context, we have to go all the way back to the beginning. The reason why many of us are not getting this right is because we don't, we don't really go back and find it in the beginning and follow it in continuity. It's like your shirt. You've had this experience a few times when you're buttoning up a shirt and you're in a hurry or you don't have a mirror and, and, and you, you get it all buttoned wrong because you didn't follow the sequence. You never had that awkward moment. So listen to me. When Jesus stoops down, remember what I started out describing to you and you thought it was totally irrelevant. You thought I was, you know, just having a bipolar moment when I went back and talked to you about what had happened just hours before. The, the soil is still moist from the water that had been poured out of those 70 urns. And the woman is thrown there at his feet. There's been all kinds of speculation as to what it was that Jesus wrote. The law dogs would tell you. <laughs> There's a reason for that. Read Galatians chapter 3. The law dogs would tell you that Jesus stooped down and he began to write the sins. He began to expose the sins of all of these self-righteous Pharisees because that's the Jesus that they believe in. I think maybe it's easy for us to understand if we, if we, before on our way back to the very first time that God's finger ever touched earth in a garden. On our way back there in Numbers chapter five, there was a really strange way of concluding without reasonable doubt that a woman who had been accused of adultery was actually guilty. In Numbers 5, if, if, if a woman had been accused of that sin, she was brought, listen now, she was brought to the tabernacle and they scooped up dirt from uh, the entrance to the tabernacle and they mixed it with water. 
She was required to do something bizarre. She was to ingest it. And if she ingested it, this sounds really superstitious, doesn't it? But if she ingested the dirt from the tabernacle door that was mixed with water, remember the temple and the water that had soaked the ground? And her belly began to swell and her thighs literally began to rot. Then she was guilty. Pretty strange. I could have left that out, but I thought you might be interested in that. <laughs> but see, the first time, I believe, what did Jesus write? He might as well have been doodling for all, I'm, all I care. I certainly don't believe this ridiculous notion that he was writing down the sins of those who had condemned because then he would be guilty of the same crime. But the first time that you ever find his fingers in the dirt is in a garden whenever he is creating a man. He is fashioning him and sculpting him. He is going to be the crown jewel in all of his creation made in his image. And when he breathes into this lifeless form made of clay, Adam, there is inside of him a woman that is yet to be revealed. The reason, listen, the reason why, this is the woman that later on will be guilty of adultery because she will entertain the lies from the man or from the being who is the father of lies. The reason why the serpent will go to the woman and not to the man is not because she's weaker and more vulnerable, but the reason why that the serpent, because Jesus will call him here in John chapter eight, the father of lies is because she is the part of the species that conceives seed. So the father of lies had to go to the part of the species that was able to conceive the lie that they were not who God told them they were. That God doesn't really love you as he said he did. You are not made in his image. And so when he puts his finger into the dirt, if you allow me the liberty, I think that what he is doing is he is stirring up a long past memory, helping her to remember who she was because notice Jesus doesn't go into a long teaching. It was just a touch. <laughs> That's the problem with most of us. I think most of the time, God just cannot wait for me to stop talking so that he can touch his people. You say, what? what's this woman got to do with the garden? See, this, this would be something probably that you struggle with, and I hope you do. I hope you leave with more questions than you do answers. I think what he was really doing was touching what was lost in the union that was dis displayed in the creation. The reason why God created the woman in the man and then later separated her from him so that the two could be one, become one, and produce one is because he wanted to see, even from the creation, his ultimate intention and purpose was us to experience union with him. 
And she had been seeking, this woman had been seeking for love in all the wrong places, which you do it all the time. He stirred something in her, didn't he? He dealt with all of the accusations from the most recent all the way back to the eldest. From the oldest Pharisee to the youngest Pharisee, they left. When he touched her. He said, wow, that's kind of stretch. No, you need to stretch more. You need to stretch so much that there's no way that you can ever go back into the original shape in which you were in. That's the problem with most of us in the religious culture is that we are bent on teaching people what to think rather than how to think. We don't understand that when infants arrive here, they arrive here with this fertile imagination, with this inc incredible intuitive nature. And what we do is we drive the questions out of them. They come with minds that are wired in the shape of a question mark and then we think it's our responsibility to teach them everything that they should know or ought to know and we make them even more like us. The other day he spoke to me he said, you know why that infants speak the language of love and intimacy better than adults and that you can learn more from them than you can from adults because adults speak the language of logic. Infants don't have language yet, so the only thing they know how to speak is love. Maybe that's one of the reasons why that babies are born in a delivery room and they've never seen a baby born laughing, they're born crying. You say, well, well, the reason why they're crying is because of the stress of the labor and delivery and their head being pressed through that narrow birth canal. Well, that's probably a good reason, but I tend to believe that's the, the reason why is when they come out of that state of floating in their mother's amniotic fluid and the warmth and even the darkness of that into the bright lights of the delivery room, they realize that they've been brought into a life of pain. They came from another world because they were chosen in him before the foundation of the world. And they've come into a life of pain. I think we've got it wrong. We cry when people die and we laugh when they're born. Maybe we should cry when they're born and laugh when they die. What is condemn, what's condemning you right now? I understand the human nature. I've been a student of it for a long time. I understand how, what the scripture has to teach about how the mind is my greatest enemy. My, my enemy is not so much the enemy. My mind is. Anybody else understand that? The things that happen to me that I think that define me. Listen to that. The things that happen to you that you think that define you. Things happen to you and then you start telling yourself a story about what happened to you. And see, what's happening right now is you're getting caught in a lie. The thing that you detest the most in people that are close to you are the people that you catch them in lies. And the truth is, is that you lie to yourself more than anybody could ever lie to yourself. 
because most of the traumatic things that have happened to us, and I understand, I'm not just speaking this theoretically, most of the, most of the traumatic things that have happened in my life that I've permitted to be defining moments in my life, hear that, I've permitted to be defining moments in my life, I don't remember so much with clarity. I think I do. I don't remember so much with clarity what happened as much as I remember how it made me feel. You say, you're still talking about this woman in adultery? Yeah. I'm still talking about you. I'm talking about the adulterous affair that you have with your affections. When Jesus is standing right in front of you, wanting to touch that part of you that causes you to remember who you really are. How many times during these summer months, especially here in the South, when the temperatures, the mercury rises and it's bumping 100 and the humidity and the heat index is 110 and you know as you look, you come out from work and you look out over the horizon and you see these big thunderheads that are beginning to build, these huge black thunderheads and you can see little flickers of lightning in it and you know that it's entirely possible that those may descend upon your neighborhood and if they do, there's the potential for losing power. And we all know what that's like and the, the AC goes off and the house gets stale and, and uh, there's, you know, if the sun has gone down, you're kind of fumbling around the house trying to find your way and you're waiting for the power to be restored. And when finally the power is restored, you don't walk around the house for the next several days, do you, with the digital clocks flashing the moment when you got the lightning strike? No, you reset the clock. But see, many of us have had storms to sweep into our lives where we have been broken, where we have been insulted, we have been deeply offended, our identity has been challenged, we've been raped physically or emotionally. And it so traumatized us. And some of you are back there in 1975. That's why Jesus doesn't address the woman's adultery. He gets up. He has to come to where she is because she can't come to where he is. And he lifts her up. And I love it when Jesus, who is the answer for the world today, asks questions. Where are your accusers? I have none. She called him master, which is a synonym for teacher. See, he wants, teaching is not just about getting more information as much as it is teaching us how to think properly. Because if you can change the way you think, everything, you, everything around you will begin to change. You start realizing that it's not so much the breakthrough that comes from without, but that breakthrough always starts from within. Breakthrough. You're waiting on a breakthrough. Some of you need a breakthrough right now. Financially, you need a breakthrough in relationships. There's tension. There's difficulty. There is frustration. There is misunderstanding in, in relationships with family members and friends and all that, and you're wanting a breakthrough. And you think that the breakthrough is going to come from ex some external source. And in reality, the breakthrough is going to start within you. 
Because when it starts within you, that means that there's no circumstance that can ever sweep into your life ever again that can cause you to fall prey to that because you've been taught the answer. Yeah. Scandalous grace. I love it. I love it. I want more of it. Anybody else? Yeah. You can make a commitment this morning to stop talking about the way things were. Because you give voice to it. You keep it alive. Even as that comes out of my mouth, as it rolls off my lips, I'm thinking of some of the things that I've been keeping alive. I'm responsible for it. Most people's testimonies, you know what they are? It's like the coroner's report a coroner that has gone out to exhume a body to try to determine the cause of death. <laughs> I don't care. The old man is dead. It doesn't make any difference what he died of. The old man is dead. <laughs> Do you know how much he loves you this morning? Do you know how much he is in constant pursuit of you even when you are unconscious of him? I shared this last week, and I just love saying it every time I say it, is that, you know, I, I really, I've heard people all my life that when they tell me about somebody that's walked away from God, they say in, in, in very somber tones, so-and-so turned their back on God. How many times have you heard that? They turned their back on God. I was thinking about that a few months ago and I thought I was reading through the journals of, of David, the Psalms, and I think it's Psalm 139, when he says, you know what? I found out that if I could grow wings and fly to the extremes of either sea, you'd be there. I can literally stay overnight in hell. Which, by the way, most of the theology that we've had about hell that we've been convinced is going to be the means by which we make a case for making converts to Christianity. It's not working these days. Have you, sound, have you found that to be true? Because most people are living in a hell, and if you describe to them going to a hell, it probably it would be a relief from what they're going through right now. So you can't scare the hell out of people. It's not, it's just not working. It's the goodness of God that leads men to repentance. If you use fear, if you use fear to manipulate, if you use fear to manipulate and to motivate, if we have been convinced that people can't possibly love God without being regularly threatened with hell or missing the evacuation, that God, we can't love God just for who he is. And so everybody wants to talk about hell or heaven. I could care less. Most people are dying to go to heaven, and I wonder, have they ever read the scriptures that Jesus died to bring heaven to us? You're dying to go somewhere, and he died to bring it to you. Stop praying, thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Stop praying that if you don't believe that to be a present possibility and reality. Jesus didn't come that you might have church and have it more often. He came that you might have life and have it more abundantly. 
Your life was never intended to be a life sentence. Most people live as if they're living a life sentence. They might as be walking around, going to their job every day with an orange jumpsuit on the back of it with Department of Corrections. They might as well be in prison. They are living a life sentence as if God has passed down a judgment on them that, you know what? You made this bed and you're going to lay in it and all you have to hope for is eventually you're going to get out of this mess and be caught up to heaven. What kind of Jesus is that? That's real attractive to the world, isn't it? Come to Jesus and be miserable for the rest of your life. I'd hate to think that my relationship with my wife is based purely on the fear that if I do not love her and care for her, that I am probably going to be the target of a devastating divorce. And that's the relationship that most people have with God. Thank you for your grace. More. Amazing grace. It really is. Newton had it right. A converted slave trader. Amazing grace. Now I have a word for you, Steve. And uh, so I'm getting to ambush you here. And I didn't plan for this. But uh, I don't know whether it still is. It doesn't make any difference if it's not. But... uh, there's a, there's a storm and the front of it is beginning to press copious amounts of rain in this direction. And uh, as we drove in the rain this morning, uh, which by the way, I'm always reminded when it rains and rains and rains and rains and rains and rains that God's, one of his first promises is that he would not again destroy the earth by flood. <laughs> But sometimes the the things that we're so desperate to hear are hidden from us in plain sight. And the rain that has been falling, he said to me during the worship this morning, that it is the latter rain for you guys. There is the former rain and the latter rain. The former rain in Israel, it fell in the springtime in order to germinate the seed that was so important to their eventual harvest. they could expect the spring rain and then the long drought. And it is not only for you, but many of you corporately. The seed that has fallen into the ground that almost has been forgotten, there are promises that have been sown in your life. There are prophecies that have been given to you in the last few years that you have actually forgotten because it is laid in a state of dormancy deep inside of you. And it rained in the beginning eight years ago. Next month is what you told me, right? September what? The last weekend in September, it is eight years, and that's significant because eight is a number that is consistent. It has continuity all the way through Scripture that has to do with new beginnings. And you told me last night that it feels like a new beginning. It feels fresh. It feels new again. It is, that number is the number of new beginnings. I don't have time to elaborate on all of that. Do you trust me? That's what it means. I mean, just when you think about one, two, three, four, five, six, seven in the melodic scale and you get to the eighth, it's an octave, right? And it's starting over again. It's just an octave up. And so what's getting ready to do? You're getting ready to change keys. God is getting ready to write a new verse to the song that he has given to this house and the distinct resonant sound that will reverberate from these walls on the south side, on the south gate 
toward this great metropolis, Atlanta. But lest I forget, the, the, the former rain that f- would fall would germinate and give breakthrough to the seed that they awaited, that break, would come out of darkness. And when it broke through, it would d- look like something that was very vulnerable, something very fragile. And then it would weather the months of drought and the intense Middle Eastern sun, temperatures of 120 degrees. But every once in a while, it would gather the moisture, the dew that would fall in the early morning. And it would survive until the deluge, the heavens would open in September. That's when the latter rain would come. And it would come in such volume that it would accelerate the maturity and the eventual fruitfulness of the fields. So I tell you now, the latter rain is getting ready to fall on Bethel, Atlanta. Now, wait a minute. Wait, 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 wait. Before you get there, you see there's some of you that are here for the first time. There's some of you who just start, started coming a few weeks ago and you think to yourself, wow, that's great for them. No, do you realize that God in his infinite wisdom and his sovereignty decided years ago, even before you were conceived, that you would sit in this audience, that you would sit in the very chair that you're in right now to hear this word. And he decided that he would going to let you in on it too. So get under the cloud. The rain is getting ready to come. I hear the sound of abundance. Now you can rejoice. The sound, the sound of abundance. It's coming. It's coming. And it's going, this abundance is going to be measured in a number, in, in diverse ways. It is going to be a measured in the abundance of joy. It's going to be in the me- measured in the abund- abundance of new births, physical and spiritual new births. That scares some of you, don't you? Some of you have decided that you are no longer going to conceive and carry in more children. God has decided that there's at least one or two more. Those of you that have felt that fear for a long time and you have been seized under the fear of being able to provide, I understand wisdom, but I do believe that God is going to extend an enormous grace to this house. I'm just going to stop pre-thinking this and let it flow. Enormous grace that is going to come to this house because there is in your loins children of destiny that will live to see the greater works that have been prophesied. If you've already packed your bags and you're sitting on the curb somewhere, maybe I ought to tell you the flight's been canceled due to inclement flight, inclement weather. What you need to do is unpack your bags and decide to occupy rather than being preoccupied with getting out of here and to know that God has given you a mandate and God has given you a mandate to prepare a generation that will live beyond you. And that latter rain is gonna cause it to come. It's gonna cause it to come. God has kept you concealed over here on the south side in this limiting facility because what he is doing is that he is applying pressure, intense pressure as he does upon a seed so that it will break open. And when it breaks open, it will be released into its ultimate destiny. Amen. Amen. Go ahead and stand. Grace, it's dangerous, isn't it? Counterintuitive, isn't it? Love it. Next time you stand in a shadow of a tree, look at that tree and think, 
Is that tree indiscriminate? Does it, listen, does it, is it discriminating? Will it give shade to somebody that's good and not shade to somebody that's bad? I stand under this light. You could bring the most perceived wicked person in the world and stand them right beside of me and the light that's shining on me shines on them. That's the way God's unconditional love is. It's indiscriminate. Jesus, we thank you this morning for every accusation, every condemnation, everything, Lord, that has haunted us and taunted us and mocked us that it leaves us now. We give it leave in Jesus' name. You have said to us, as you said to the woman, where are your accusers? And we say corporately, everybody together in a a declaration, we say, I have none. Say it, I have none. I have none. You're a good, good God. (laughs) You're a good, good God. Yes, you are. You're a good, good God. Amen. Well, let's give Rano a big hand this morning. Come on.